Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. As we're coming in from the foyer, let's get excited. Let's stand together. We get to sing these good songs of praise. We're going to sing about the good news, the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ this morning. So let's stand and let's sing together. There is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my father's plan. The sun has rescued me. Jesus Christ. 
That's good news, church. We can stand here with assurance this morning. Amen? Amen. So if you would, if you see any seats to your left, if you could scoot to the left, it helps our ushers find seats a ton. If you could scoot to your left, and then you can have a seat. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Alex Davis, and I serve in the women's ministry as a small group leader. We are so thankful that you have chosen to worship with us today. Okay, I have some announcements for the ladies in the room. This Tuesday, Women's Bible Study starts. We have a 9 o'clock time and a 6.30 p.m. The 9 a.m. time has three different study options, and the 6.30 has one study option. We meet in the elementary center. Um, Childcare is provided, but please register for that. And if you have any questions, come to the women's booth after the service, and we'd love to talk to you. Next, if you are a single woman in your 30s or 40s, we are having a sip and socialize. It is on February 18th at 1045 in the back office, and we'd love for you to come and join us. Lastly, single and significant. If you are a single woman in your 50s and older, either by choice or circumstance, we are having a potluck. Um, That is February 25th in the FSN room at 1245. We do ask that you register for this just so that we can have enough seats and make sure we're prepared for everyone who wants to come. If you will turn your attention to the screen for a few more announcements. Hi, Fellowship family. My name is Lindsay Gibson. I am a licensed professional counselor here in Northwest Arkansas, and I have the privilege to be on site here at Fellowship Fayetteville, helping people navigate through life struggles and trying to find a place of comfort and healing. We have the honor and the opportunity to offer a group starting February 7th until March 27th called Grief Recovery Program. It is a group that is set to help people identify grief, understand it better, how we cope with it, and to be able to provide an environment that is safe to navigate our way through that grief process to a place of healing. When we come together as one, we can feel God's presence and be able to learn better how to deal with life struggles. Grief isn't only just the loss of a person. It can be the loss of a relationship. It can be the loss of a pet. It's any change in our life that we feel a place that feels like a void. And we want to be able to offer here at Fellowship a place for people to come together and unite in one to find healing. Uh, We hope that we can see you there. It is an eight-week program. All of the equipment and supplies will be readily available for you. It is free, no cost whatsoever. If this program sounds like a good fit for you and something that you're interested in, head over to the Fellowship Fayetteville website and you will click on the link for Grief Recovery Support Group. We hope to see you there. Well, hey, church family. My name is Andy Petrie, and if we haven't had a chance to meet, I've got the privilege of being able to serve with Celebrate Recovery here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And we wanted to say thank you for the response that we've gotten for our recent Celebrate Recovery Life's Healing Choices series that we've done. And we wanted to invite you to something really special that's happening with Celebrate Recovery this coming Friday, February 9th. 
We're gonna be celebrating our five-year anniversary of having Celebrate Recovery here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And we've got a really special life change story planned for this coming Friday. A couple weeks ago, you may have remembered Julia sharing part of her story during service, and she's gonna be sharing her full story of what God's done in her life this coming Friday. And so we'd love for you to come and be a part of that and celebrate with us this coming Friday, February 9th at seven o'clock over in the Student Center. I mean, five years for Celebrate Recovery. Man, that's, that is, that's awesome. Um, Thank you to our elders uh, for seeing the value in that and for pushing us to have Celebrate Recovery here at Fellowship Fayetteville. As well, I know many of you, including myself, have seen the fruit of that. So we're thankful for that. One more quick announcement. Uh, Ash Wednesday, February 14th. We're going to have a service here. We know it's Valentine's Day. Uh, but we would love to see you here uh, at 7 p.m. in this room on February 14th. There is child care available. We just need you to sign up for it. So click that um, or take a picture of that QR code. You can sign up there. This service, this Ash Wednesday service, we had it last year and we leaned into it a little heavier than years before. And it, it might have been my favorite service of the year. Um, and, and the reason being is because um, so often um, we experience worship in, the, in, in a few different ways here on, on Sunday mornings, but, but we're kind of confined to some, to some specific ways because of the sheer mass of people. Uh, but this, this service last year, I think we had around 700 people or so. We had a little more uh, room in here to move around, and we had some different opportunities to engage in worship. We were singing songs. You can stand and you can sing. Um, we encourage you to kneel, to pray, to confess before the Lord. Uh, we even have... Uh, communion available that's going to be in the front. You can come and take communion. Then we've got black sheets that we put on the sides of the stage here. And we encourage everyone that's here to take a black Sharpie and to write and to confess their sins on these black sheets as a form of worship, as a form of confession. And then we take those sheets and we hang them on the cross and we leave them there until Easter morning to remind us that Jesus has paid the price for those sins. And so there's so many different ways to worship. It's a really special night. I really encourage you, if you're able to, you don't want to miss out. That's 7 p.m. February 14th for Ash Wednesday. So many different ways to worship. And then this morning, we're going to continue to worship in a new way as well. Uh, we're going to worship with baptism. So if you would, turn your attention to the baptismal there. Well, good morning, church family. I want you to meet my friend Campbell Walker. Say hi to everybody, Campbell. <laughs> uh, I met Campbell uh, a few months ago. Um, we were talking at the gym, struck up a conversation. He uh, asked me if I worked at Fellowship. Campbell grew up here at Fellowship years and years ago when we were only up in Rogers. And uh, I think his family's here with us this morning. Good to see you guys. And uh, as we got to talking, he was sharing his story with me, and he said that even though he understood the gospel and affirmed his faith when he was younger and was part of some cell groups here at Fellowship, he had never followed the Lord in baptism and obeyed him in that way. And so we met for coffee, walked through the gospel and his story, and he wanted to affirm his faith before his church family uh, with you guys this morning. And so I just wanted to affirm um, your obedience in the Lord. And... Um, the great things that God's doing in your life. And so thanks for stepping out. Your courage is going to help others to be courageous in that way this morning. And so is it your testimony with your church family, Campbell, 
that you've trusted in Jesus to rescue you from your sins and you believe he rose from the dead to give you life. Well, based on that affirmation, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Would you stand with us as we continue to worship this morning?
that old enemy of Israel was back, the Philistines. As their army edged into Israel's territory, they set up camp on one side of the Valley of Elah. On the other side, King Saul gathered his troops. The two armies eyed each other, the broad valley spreading out between them. Every day, for 40 days, morning and evening, the two armies would face off. Between them would stand Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. His bronze helmet and armor gleaning in the sun, he would hold up his great iron-tipped spear and taunt the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel. Send a man who will fight me. The Israelites trembled with fear. How could any of them face off against this well-armed giant? Meanwhile, about 20 miles away, David was keeping his father's sheep. Take this care package and check on your three older brothers who are fighting the Philistines. David's father told him. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out for the valley where the armies were camped. When he arrived, he was talking with his brothers when he heard the daily taunts from Goliath. It shocked David that the Israelite army was afraid to fight him, and he asked what the reward for killing him would be. When King Saul heard that David was asking about the reward, he sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. Yahweh rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear. He will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. He gave David his own armor, but David quickly realized he couldn't fight like that. He wasn't used to the heavy equipment. Instead, he picked up five smooth stones from a stream and he put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight this Philistine. Goliath walked out towards David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. And David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh, the commander of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. This is Yahweh's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. Goliath stumbled, and he fell face down on the ground. David ran, quickly grabbed Goliath's sword, and used it to finish him off. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Soon the people of Israel were singing songs 
and celebrating David's great victory. Oh, come behold the works of God, nations at his feet. He breaks the bow, bends the spear, and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. You walk by faith, and God burns the chariots with fire. Oh, 
sing a song like that and we can, we can feel the majesty of the Lord, we can thank Him for that. We can also feel and understand our brokenness and our need for Him. So just like we do every week, let's go, let's, let's be reminded of that in the form of confession. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. Just like that song proclaimed, the Lord is a promise keeper. He has rescued us. For those of us that believe in his life, his death and his resurrection through his son, Jesus, we, we follow him with our lives and we have hope. So church, believe that good news that Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, you can have a seat. Well, good morning, fellowship. So good to see you all this morning. I'm sorry to those of you that we don't have a seat for. It looks like we have some empties, and so if you want to work your way down, I'm sure we can find a spot for some of you. Welcome. Have y'all ever heard this story before, David and Goliath? Yeah, of course you have. It would be hard to find a more familiar story. We've all grown up with it. Like, it's part of our culture. It's part of our language. If you ever say to somebody, that's a real David and Goliath type situation, they don't go, I'm sorry, I don't, what was that reference? I've never, we all know that. I think most of us, it would be hard to remember a time we'd never heard the story. And I think the way we first encounter it, the way we think of it in our mind, it probably varies based on how old we are. So if you're an 80s kid, or like me, a 70s kid, maybe going on back, you probably remember these guys. Did y'all grow up with the old felt board in Sunday school? We called it a flannel graph. Did anybody else call it a flannel graph? I said that to somebody this week, and they were like, flannel graph? I got to look at my notes to remember what it's called now. What's it called now? A fuzzy felt. Y'all ever heard of a fuzzy felt? Nah, this guy hadn't. Don't make a homeschool joke. Don't make a homeschool joke. But if you're a little younger, maybe you're a 90s kid. Maybe you're a two, 2000s, 2000s, I don't know. If you're in your 20s or 30s. Maybe you didn't grow up with this. Maybe you grew up with these guys. You didn't even get David and Goliath. You got Dave and the giant pickle. Does anybody remember the song? Little guys can do big things too. I wanted Burton to put it in the worship set. He fought me on it, but I don't know why. We all grew up with this story. And then a few years ago, we got into this time where people were we're kind of re retelling it, recasting it. Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book, David and Goliath. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I really wish I could impersonate him because I would right now. But he wrote a book where he said, David actually wasn't the underdog. He had all these advantages. And then we've got more than one book of this kind. This one's called Goliath as Gentle Giant, a sympathetic portrayal. And full disclosure, I have read Gladwell's. I have not read these other ones, but I figure if Joker and Cruella DeVille can tell their story from their point of view, so can Goliath. 
But it's more than just the story. We love the cliche, especially when it comes to sports and especially when it comes to sports movies. And we aren't subtle with it. I mean, facing the Giants, they put it right in the title. You don't have to figure out what they're going for. And Hoosiers, I love Hoosiers. But they're not subtle either. If you've seen this movie, the preacher comes in and prays the David and Goliath story over the high school basketball team before the big game. And I had to share this one. This headline cracked me up. The Miracle on Ice, the 1980 hockey team, still the only time David took down Goliath. I can think of at least one other one. (laughs) And that's the one we're going to look at today, the original. So go ahead and pull out your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. My name's Michael. I serve on the community team here. And I want to encourage you this morning. Let's look at the text. Let's forget the flannel graph the fuzzy felt. Let's forget Veggie Tales, Malcolm Gladwell. That stuff all has its place. But for today, let's look at the original text and let's see what the Lord might want to teach us from his word. So 1 Samuel 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 3, which kind of summarizes the beginning. It says, the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Okay, let's start with Israel. This is very early in Israel's history as a nation. Clark did an incredible job last week of just setting the the, the stage for 1 Samuel and how it fits into the biblical narrative. If you missed last week, I want to really strongly encourage you, go back, listen to that podcast. It's going to help you through this whole David series to see how this fits together. But at this point, Israel is really more of a loose confederation of tribes than a centrally controlled strong nation. But Saul, their first human king, he he does rally other troops together. He gets an army together, and they're having this standoff with this other army, the Philistines. Now, Josiah, when he was sharing the story earlier, he referred to the Philistines as Israel's ancient foe, and that's exactly who they were. This beef between Israel and the Philistines goes way, way back. Believe it or not, it goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham, the father of Israel, he doesn't get in a shooting war with the forerunner of the Philistines, but let's just say they get off on the wrong foot. And by the time Joshua brings the people of Israel into the promised land, the Philistines are a well-established, strong people. And they become a thorn in the side of Israel for centuries to come. On this map, you can see the Philistia, the land of the Philistines. It's kind of that green area along the coast of Israel there. They have five major cities. And this week, Garland pointed out something good on our podcast, Sermon Notes. We have this podcast we do every week where we talk about the passage we're going to teach on. And Garland pointed out, for the Philistines, to the north, very mountainous, to the south, desert, To the west, the sea. So when they need something, when they need resources, really the only place for them to go is into Israel. And that area where they border Israel is a lush agricultural area. It's a breadbasket. So it was a natural place for them to go when they needed grain and other things. And obviously, Israel was always trying to prevent that. You can kind of see that little box with an arrow. That's where our story takes place, the valley of Elah. This is a picture 
of the Valley of Elah today. You can go there today and stand in the valley. And you can look on this side and imagine the Israelite army lined up on the ridge. And look on this side and imagine the Philistine army. You can look down at your feet and see smooth stones. And I bring that up to remind you of something you already know. This is an actual historical event that happened to actual people in an actual place you can go visit. This story did not happen in Shrek world. It didn't happen in Star Wars world. It happened in the real world to real people. So don't let our familiarity with the story make you forget that. So in verse four, we meet maybe the most famous Philistine ever. There came from the camp of the Philistines a champion whose name was Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. All right, first of all, what's the deal with him being a champion? It doesn't mean that he won state in the 5A in the javelin his senior year. That word champion literally means man between the two. And this was a surprisingly common practice in ancient warfare. Each side would send out a man who would stand between the two armies, and they would settle it one-on-one. We see it in Homer's epic poems. If you've seen the movie Troy, you know what I'm talking about. And the Philistines have got a pretty imposing champion, don't they? Now, if you dig into the commentaries and you read what Bible scholars say, there is some controversy out there about how tall Goliath actually was. I'm using the ESV which is relying on our oldest manuscripts to come up with this height, which equates to to what we would say like nine foot nine. There are some other manuscripts that would put his height at more like six foot nine. And there's people on both sides of this who will argue very passionately. So let me tell you what I think. I think Goliath was real tall. (laughs) I think he was scary tall. I think that's the point. Not only was he really tall and really well-armed, he was a world-class trash talker. Look at verse 10. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you even come up for a battle? He says, am I not a Philistine? And you're just servants of Saul. He says, choose for yourselves a man. And let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, tell you what, we'll be your servants. But if I prevail and kill him, you shall be our servants. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Pretty bold. But I also get the sense this ain't his first rodeo. He's done this before and he's still alive. And so he probably feels pretty confident when he says, I defy the ranks of Israel. And I want you to remember that statement. That's going to be important. Now, before we get to David's part of this story, I want to just show you some things the writer of 1 Samuel is doing to pull some things from the first half of this this book of 1 Samuel together. He's working some themes here. I want you to look back with me. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is when the nation of Israel is demanding a king. And what do they like about Saul? He's tall. What a great method for choosing your leader by height. 
Think what we could save on elections. I'm not saying that's the only reason they wanted him, but the writer does go out of his way to note it. And then last week, Clark showed us that God chastised Samuel and said, don't look at his appearance or on what? The height of his stature. Don't let his height fool you. God looks at the heart. Then we turn the page to 1 Samuel 17. What are they looking at? His height. It's a theme that Samuel's working through here. And the writer set us up for something else back in chapter 13 when he told us that there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, and the Philistines wanted to keep it that way. Now, that word translated blacksmith, it's normally translated craftsman. It means metal worker. Israel did not have the skill or the technology to match the Philistines when it came to metalwork. Then look at this description we get of Goliath. Go back one, please. The description we get of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. His helmet's bronze. His armor is bronze. His javelin is bronze. And to top it all off, pun intended, his spear has an iron tip. Y'all, this is cutting edge technology for 1000 BC. And Israel cannot match it. And then third, this is the one the writer has really been setting up for. When the people are asking for a king, they say, we want a king so that he can judge us and that he will go out before us and fight our battle. This scene is exactly what they have in mind. Give us a tall, strong warrior king who will go out there and fight our battle. Now we get to 1 Samuel 17. And where is Saul? He's with the rest of the army, dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul is back here with all these soldier farmers shaking in his boots. Now, I know I'm being kind of hard on Saul. I know that. But it's because I want to make this point. Before Israel asked for and got King Saul, they had a king. And his name was Yahweh. Clark pointed it out to us last week. In 1 Samuel 8, God told Samuel, they have rejected me, God, from being king over them. So look at Israel's situation. Before this, Yahweh was their king, and he actually did go out and fight their battles for them. We could tick them off coming out of Egypt. God parts the Red Sea. They go through on dry land. Then what happens to the Egyptian army? God crashes the waters in on them and destroys them. When they get to the promised land, Joshua brings them in. They have to fight this fortified city, Jericho. What happens? God knocks the walls down and the battle's effectively over. When they're in the promised land and they're being oppressed by the Midianites, God takes Gideon and whittles his army down to 300 guys with trumpets and torches. And they win the battle. When they rely on God as their king to fight their battles for them, not only do they win, they win in spectacular fashion. So the writer of 1 Samuel has carefully crafted this narrative. So we see the people of Israel reject God as their king, ask for Saul as their human king, and then he shows us how Saul faces up to a pagan giant 
arrayed in the latest military technology. The writer goes out of his way to portray Goliath as invulnerable, unbeatable. He's a challenge not just to Israel's army, but to Saul himself. He calls him out by name. And when he challenges the Israeli army, he's in effect challenging God himself, Yahweh. When he says, I defy the ranks of Israel, by extension, he's saying, I defy God. Okay, so our series is called Rise and Fall of David. Where's David in all this? Well, he's out keeping his father's sheep. Now, three of his brothers are there at the battle lines, but apparently his dad and his brothers, they consider David too young, too small, too inexperienced to be of any good. They think of him not as a soldier, but as a shepherd and a harp player and a poet. And in our passage, a delivery boy. Because his dad says, here, take these provisions to your brothers. And then he says something I thought was kind of funny. He says, and take the captain 10 cheeses. So I guess David's supposed to roll up and be like, Captain, in appreciation for your military service to our nation, enjoy a nice cheese plate. So David arrives, and he hears Goliath's challenge. Look at the end of verse 24. David heard him, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. They were much afraid. David's not there to fight. He's there to deliver cheese. And yet he hears Goliath's threats. And he sees the Israelite army cowering in fear. And David takes it personally. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away this reproach, this shame, this embarrassment from Israel. For who is this circumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God. There it is. This Philistine's not just defying any army. It's the army of the living God. Now, remember, just last week we saw when David was anointed as the future king of Israel, the Holy Spirit came upon him. David has the Holy Spirit informing his thoughts and his words, and he can't believe that God's army, Israel, and their king, Saul, are letting this Philistine pop off like this. So he talks to his brothers. They totally give him the little brother treatment. They're like, why are you even here? You don't know what you're talking about. But David won't let it go. He keeps talking to people, and he finally ends up in front of King Saul in verse 32. And David says, let no man's heart fail because of him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He says, listen, king, y'all don't be scared. I'll fight him. And of course, Saul says, no, you won't. You're just a kid. This guy is a fighting machine. But David's determined. He won't let it go. He says, listen, when I was out watching my dad's sheep, a lion or a bear would come along and I'd have to rescue the sheep. And he says, I'd grab them by the jaw. The ESV says, I would grab their beard and I'd club them in the head. That's pretty impressive to me. But look who David points to for his success. Verse 37, 
the Lord, all caps, means Yahweh. Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David knows that the Lord is with him. As far as David's concerned, if the Lord could deliver him from a bear or from a lion, he can deliver him from this Philistine. And so Saul relents, which speaking purely from like a military or a strategic perspective is crazy. This is a winner-take-all deal. The stakes could not be higher. And he decides he's going to trot out this young, untested, untrained shepherd boy. And then ironically, Saul, the tall, good-looking warrior king, says to David, the shepherd boy, you can wear my armor. I mean, it just drips with irony. Saul, you should be going out to fight him. And you're going to put David in your armor? And it doesn't take David long to figure out, I can't wear this. This, is not, this doesn't work for me. And so instead, David gets his staff. He gets his shepherd's bag, which the writer points out is not a soldier's bag. It's a shepherd's bag. And he puts five smooth stones in it. And we all know he's only going to need one. David heads out onto the floor of that valley. Can you picture it? Here comes this little shepherd boy. No helmet, no armor, no shield, no spear. And he's going to take on this giant who's arrayed in the best military technology the world has to offer. And Goliath can't believe it. Both armies are looking on. Goliath is mocking him. He laughs at him. And then he makes what I think is his last critical error. He cursed David by his gods. Now there's no question. This isn't about David versus Goliath. This isn't about Israel versus Philistia. This is about Goliath's false pagan gods versus the God of Israel. And David knows it. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Yahweh. The Lord of hosts, it means the Lord of the angel armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. There it is again. When he defied the ranks of Israel, he wasn't defying just any army. It was the army of the living God. I come in the name of Yahweh. He goes on to say, the Lord, Yahweh, will deliver you into my hand. And then David says, this is going to happen in order that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, for the battle is the Lord's. And we all know what happened next. David took that one stone, and he loaded up that sling of his, and he put that rock right between Goliath's eyes with one blow. The battle was over. The Lord had decisively won. And the Philistine army took one look at their great champion laying on the ground. This shepherd boy taking the champion's own sword and cutting his head off, and they ran. But here's the thing. The whole story is not about the underdog. It's not even really about David. It's about the Lord. It's about the whole world knowing 
that there is a God in Israel and that he is the true God. What the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see is the outcome was certain because the Lord was with David. Y'all, David knew he had this battle won before he ever went out there because he knew the Lord was with him. And so here's what I don't want you to take away from this morning. I don't want you to take away this. David was brave and faced his giants, so you be brave and face your giants too because that is not the point of the story. The point of the story is that when the Lord is in it, you've already won no matter what happens. So what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us, New Testament followers of Jesus? Well, let's look at them. For David, he knew that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had proven his faithfulness. He had proven it in battle after battle. We already ticked some of those off. For David personally, he had proven it when he rescued him from the bear and from the lion. And we know that Jesus has proven his faithfulness. Oh, he proved it when he stepped out of heaven and was born as a baby, as a human being. He proved it when he lived the perfect life none of us could ever live. And he proved it ultimately when he went to the cross. When he died the death he did not deserve, the death that you and I did deserve, it was the ultimate demonstration of his faithfulness. David also knew that Yahweh had power over those empty idols. He wasn't afraid of the so-called gods of the Philistines because he knew that his God, the God of Israel, had power over those idols. And when we read the gospel accounts in the New Testament, we see again and again, Jesus has power over evil spirits. Jesus casts out demons. We see that Jesus has power over nature. He has power over disease. He even has power over death. David said that when he went out, he went in the name of Yahweh. And what he meant by that was there is power in that name. When he goes in the name of Yahweh, he goes taking with him everything that Yahweh represents. Jesus said, anything you ask in my name, I'll do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There's power in Jesus' name. We know there's no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's power in Jesus' name. And David correctly said, the battle is the Lord's. And we know that in Christ, the battle's already won. When Jesus went to the cross, he defeated sin and the power of sin forever. And then when he was resurrected on the third day, he defeated death on our behalf. We benefit from his victory. The two biggest giants any of us would ever face, sin and death, have already been defeated by Jesus. And then, as we've already said, David knew that God was with him. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, went with him. David, and again and again in the New Testament, we're told, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. 
Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will never leave you. The very last thing Jesus says in Matthew's gospel is, I am with you to the end. And That's the message of 1 Samuel 17. See, the outcome was never in doubt because God was with David. And so for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, if you've accepted the free gift of salvation he offers, the outcome is certain because Jesus is with us. Whatever we're facing, whatever seems too big for us, Whatever seems too powerful for us to face it down, it's not too big for Jesus. All that's left for us to do is believe. Jesus said, our work is to believe on the one the Father sent. Because when we place our faith in him, the outcome is certain. Because whatever the battle is, ultimately, Jesus has already won. Hey, let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you for this incredible story. Lord, it's a touchstone of our culture for a reason because it's so powerful as we enter into it. And Lord, I thank you that this story that took place 3,000 years ago resonates still today because it points forward to your son, Jesus And so, Lord, I pray that everybody in here would just step from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, would believe in the power of the cross, would receive Jesus as their Savior, and would go out from this place knowing, knowing that the outcome is certain because Jesus has already won. Would you stand with us as we respond in worship? We have a deliverer and he's writing a good story in our lives. There's peace that outlasts darkness. There's hope that's in love. There's future grace that's mine today then Jesus Christ has won so I can't face tomorrow for tomorrow's in your hands and all I need you will provide just like you always have some fighting about
We can clap and we can give praise because we have a Savior that is writing our story. Amen. That it's going to be a good story because he's a good Savior. And so when we leave the doors, when we leave this building this morning, let's believe that. Let's live like that. Okay, church? Well, if you would like to take communion, the doors through your left, it's available through there. Or if you would like to pray with someone, the doors through your right, up to the prayer room. Have a great week of worship, church. Let's walk like we know the Lord and that our story is written in him. Have a great week of worship.